what I do know is that the way in which value is transferred, the ability to move with the US dollar pegged to it, or some commodity pegged to it, is actually going to make it more widespread. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Today, I'm excited to bring you the inaugural episode of our new podcast series, Crypto Corner. Cryptocurrency adoption not just by individuals and investors, but also by organizations and even governments as legal currency represents a vast new world of financial possibilities. It also opens the door to new risks. In this episode of the Crypto Corner podcast, we discuss the geopolitical risk and national security implications of cryptocurrencies, as well as looking back at how crypto has been disrupting the status quo for more than a decade. Our host is Rain founder David Lawrence. His guests are Joseph Hanvey, Chief Compliance Officer at Falcon X, and Tim Murphy, President and CEO of Consortium.net. All right, first of all, uh, special thanks, Tim. Joe for joining and being part of uh, the Crypto Corner. And uh, I thought since this is the first podcast and we'll be getting into a number of subjects uh, both this week and in the following weeks, I thought it would be helpful to do a slightly longer introduction uh, to our audience of uh, your respective backgrounds and how uh, you came to be interested in and to be part of um, the um, space known as, broadly known as crypto. Uh, But each of you took a a slightly different uh, journey uh, in getting here. And uh, both of you are among uh, the most thoughtful and enlightened individuals I know uh, in this space. So Joe, why don't we start with your background and, uh, you know, leading up to your current position. That's great. Well, thank you, David. And uh, it's a pleasure to be on. And Tim, it's a pleasure to be on this uh, podcast with you to talk about these issues. You know, I, I turn around and I ask myself, how did I get into crypto? It's been three and a half uh, years of my life. And uh, I think it all comes down to curiosity. You know, I started out uh, back in uh, 1995, actually, looking back at it, uh, working on the Hill for a member of Congress as a staff assistant, and then finding myself working at NESD. Uh, four years later, now FINRA in 1999. And I was involved in something called an anti-money laundering sweep. And uh, that was in July of 2001. And it was uh, coordinated with the SEC and the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, then 9-11 happened. And here I was, an examiner that was involved in AML, but I, I really had no clue. And back then it was, uh, you know, you typed literally in in probably uh, Internet Explorer, Netscape, um, BSA, and it came out as Boy Scouts of America. And that's exactly how I started my career in regulation. And the last 20 years, I've been focusing on primarily anti-money laundering matters. And, you know, traveling the world, working on deferred prosecution agreements, uh, working for financial institutions, working for consultancies. And three and a half years ago, you know, my curiosity was piqued. And I started working for a uh, crypto company that was one of the, um, uh, you know, it was a crypto company that actually had, uh, you know, a lot of great ideas about uh, getting involved in, in, you know, in order execution, you know, looking and feeling like a, a normal order routing uh, type of uh, broker dealer environment. It never took off. Uh, then I went to another crypto company. Uh, where we created two stable coins, uh, one U.S. dollar backed and one uh, yen pegged stable coin. 
And uh, then back in July, I started as a chief compliance officer here at FalconX. And um, so my journey into crypto is uh, continuing and, and I'm loving it. And uh, I'll, I'll pause there, turn it back over to you, David, and we're looking forward to going any deep dive. Okay, great. And uh, Tim, uh, your background, you and I have known each other for a number of years and uh, one would probably be a bit surprised to know that the former deputy director of the FBI has not only been a close follower of this space, but an investor as well, and a very successful one. So maybe you can just sort of uh, share with the audience uh, your your broad background and sort of how you came to the space. Yeah, sure. And thanks, thanks again, David, for having me. And, and Joe, likewise. I think Joe hit it on the head when he, he talks about you, you have to have a curiosity, right, and a continual learning, um, you know, in the world today, especially as fast as technology is moving. So, you know, David, you know, I spent the, spent my most of my adult life in the FBI, retiring as deputy director, and during that time, you know, saw a number of bad actors using cryptocurrencies in, in the early days. Um, and, you know, that was the branding then, that, right? Crypto was used just for illicit activity. And then upon leaving, um, you know, the FBI, and then I worked on Wall Street for a few years, and then I'm done my second startup, um, all in the technology space. And so I've always had a curiosity around uh, Bitcoin, specifically at the beginning, and cryptocurrencies in general. And I also currently today, I sit on the board of uh, Western Union, and I sit also on the board of Epiphany, which is a global exchange for cryptocurrencies. And I, with my curiosity, was around, you know, really as, as an investor, really doing due diligence around 2015, 2016, and, and having been involved in the, the good portion of my investments are, are in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, um, as well as others d- d- diversifying. Um, but I've always, it's just always intrigued me and, and to watch this space grow like it has and to just see the world change similar to the adoption of, of the Internet. And so that, that really is what piqued my curiosity is, is the ability to move money. And at the time, uh, the anonymous nature um, was interesting, although it's, it's not as interesting today. And I think it got branded that many years ago. But generally, the background was curiosity and uh, seeing it uh, used for list activity and then today watching the adoption of bitcoin and cryptocurrencies uh, since 2009 and i think it really is going to have an impact on the world in in the next five ten years and um what i'll mention to our audience is both um you tim and joe have sort of been leaders in trying to bridge the gap between uh, the enforcement and regulatory communities and those groups that are investing, building platforms, building currencies, et cetera, to promote mutual understanding. So in that vein, let me uh, uh, give a a somewhat famous quote, which is misunderstood by, um, unfortunately, but uh, Marshall McLuhan, the renowned uh, expert um, in technology and communications and trying to understand why the world behaves the way it does, uh, coined a phrase, um, the medium is the message. And as you look at um, digital currencies broadly, and you see 
you know, various, I'll call it tropes that are attached to it. The future of money, people describe it as the Wild West. Uh, there are different camps that, you know, are highly incredulous and others that are, you know, quite frankly, they're, they're the evangelists around the space. What should we understand? What is the real message uh, around the technology and I'll call it the following around cryptocurrencies and sort of why has it emerged, why there's so much speculation, why there, quite frankly, uh, so much money invested in digital currencies. Joe, why don't we start with you? Well, um, I thought maybe perhaps, David, we would have started off with a um, more difficult question, but that's that's pretty easy. My sarcasm, at best, that might not translate. No, it, um, it translates. <laughs> Joe, it, tra it translates, and I, I will mention to the audience: Joe hosted a wonderful session uh, with people from the bureau and IRS, and explaining their focus, their concerns, you know how they were organized. But the question that they did not answer is: Okay, why here? Why now? Why is this taking off? So anyway. I David, I, I love that. And, you know, I mean, since this is the first one, I'll, I'll start with uh, admiration. I've been, you know, uh, following uh, you and your career ever since you were at uh, Goldman years ago. And you talk about a, uh, uh, you know, a, a think tank, uh, a, you know, an organization like Rain and uh, what you're doing there and um, how you have actually contributed to the dialogue has been uh, equally as amazing to watch. And, um, you know, so we're, we're still talking to the IRS CI guys and uh, we'll talk to them again next month, you know, and, and we'll continue that conversation. I'll get them to answer that. Um, but you touched on so many things and, and I have a lot of reactions. So to keep it focused, uh, the first is, you know, people are no longer asking right now, why crypto? They're asking how crypto, right? How do I responsibly get involved in crypto? But the broader question, my reaction to this and what I was laughing at is, it's like the proverbial uh, elephant, right? I'm touching the tail, crypto looks like that. I'm touching the, uh, the you know, toenail of the elephant, crypto looks like that. I'm touching the trunk, I'm, I'm touching the, the husks. You know, all different parts of the elephant are different uh, countries, different regulatory uh, agencies with a different lens. Uh, investors are looking at crypto for the great yield that they're getting. You know, it's attractive versus sticking your money into the uh, into the banking system. Um, you know, you have uh, compliance officers like myself that are looking at it, not from an intelligence standpoint. Yes, I would like to understand how OFAC is, um, you know, circumvented and especially on the transparency of a blockchain and how money laundering is occurring and how uh, the tokens are being manipulated similar to, uh, you know, what we're thinking of an OTCPB penny stock. I'm interested in all of those things. But what I'm interested in and what is uh, really, uh, you know, from my focus of, you know, uh, why crypto is all through the lens of uh, Falcon X. You know, we're an institutional marketplace and we need to actually demonstrate that there's trust in our company, trust in the markets, trust in the tokens that we're actually uh, reaching out to trade so that um, you know, so that the institutions coming to us, the the corporate treasuries, the hedge funds, all of the institutional clients are actually feeling that we actually have a comfortable program that is very familiar to them. While, you know, it might not be um, 
something of uh, you know the, the global regulations, domestic regulations are uh, you know are, are not yet there, right? So it doesn't look like a bank, it doesn't look like a broker dealer, but the people at the organization, the controls at the organization, they're familiar to them, so that they could say, okay. We're willing to get, this is the how, we're willing to get involved in crypto and uh, make certain investments. And, and this is the way, uh, you know, we're going to do it. So that was that was my initial reaction uh, to this. And we could go so many different ways, David, as you know, on this one. But uh, that is my reaction to that. Tim, I know you've been studying the market broadly for a long time and, and you have skin in the game sort of, you know, maybe you can help explain what, what what really is the message to the marketplace in terms of how cryptocurrencies have taken off? I think the the message here, and we, and we I think we need to give uh, probably just a little bit of, a little bit of history for those, because I think there's a lot of disinformation out there or, or people just reading certain aspects of this this whole ecosystem that I truly believe is is changing not only the investing world and and um, but actually you know the the transfer of uh, money cross borders uh, around the world and having impact. But you know I think people need to understand that it's it's still only ten, eleven, twelve years old. You know, it was built around uh, during the during the, the financial crisis. Two thousand eight comes out in two thousand nine. We see it first, you know, used on the dark net as actually for transactions, right? A medium of exchange, and that's really was the first premise around it because, especially around illicit activity, because it was uh, labeled or branded as anonymous. Um, we know that you know there's some anonymity to it now, but it is trackable. Wallets are trackable. And then it became a store of value. And I think around the time a store of value was the time that, that I started investing investing in it. Um, and the ability to transact, I think this has ebbed and flowed. It, the ability to transact with it um, actually decreased as it became a store of value, but now we're suddenly seeing it transact. And I think it's early, early stages. And I think we're still in early, early stages when you look at adoption curves of the Internet and, and other technology from electricity, you know, all the way up to the Internet. And if you look at those adoption curves, you know, this is happening very fast when you look at the number of years it's taking place. And I think it's it's changing and morphing, especially with Bitcoin. Now, there's other there's 2000 or probably more today. Joe, right? Then, then at any time, it might be more than that that I'm even aware of. There's literally thousands of thousands of cryptocurrencies that have been, you know, established, and this is no different than I think during the the first of the internet stage, where there was a, a ton of companies being built and used, and they're no longer in existence today. So I think you have this adoption curve. I think we're in this curve now where it's a store of value, but also going back and looking at how. Bitcoin can be used in transactions. You're seeing that around the world. You're seeing that with companies today that still accept Bitcoin, you know, for transactions. They may not be doing a lot of it, but Microsoft, Home Depot, Overstock, Starbucks, Whole Foods, um, these companies all accept Bitcoin for a transaction. Uh, Elon Musk at Tesla, Tesla did it for a bit and then and backed off it. So I think you're going to see more of that. You're seeing the change in El Salvador, where it's actually a, a you know legal tender now, and your 200 ATMs have been deployed, and and you're seeing a lot of transactions down there. The government gave a certain amount of Bitcoin to their citizens. Again, I think this is all just this discovery phrase of the adoption curve, 
that these are early adopters. We may not see it in the same state two years, five years, and 10 years that we see it today. But you can certainly see if you look around the world where there's estimates of 51 million people trading and at least 20 million people in the United States alone. There's 11,000 jobs in the crypto space and on LinkedIn. Uh, the, the, the market cap value is $2 trillion. So um, it's certainly intriguing enough and you're seeing institutional adoption both um, out front and behind the scenes in this space. And I, you know, I think you have to stick your head in the sand if you don't see that there's this massive movement and change underway. But I want to go back to something Joe said, which I think is very important. So I'm excited about what the future can hold for this. But Joe went back to, and this is what I'm working on in this space, is you still have to have trust, right? Trust around the rails, trust around the system, trust around who's holding it. And that, I think, right now is is just in its early, early um, stages. And people like Joe and myself are, you know, how do you do that without stifling innovation, right? How do we put put uh, safeguards around financial interests and the financial systems for people and not stifle innovation. So there's a lot of work to be, do, be done. There's a lot of space ahead of us, um, but that's generally what I feel of the market today. So um, responses from both of you, uh, terrifically insightful. And let me go to this point about trust and maybe uh, unpack uh, what is the message of cryptocurrency how much of the interest here um, is built around growing distrust of governmental institutions, fiat currency, the debasement of fiat currency, et cetera? And you know, from your vantage points, is there not a broader message? Because we've seen this in a whole bunch of arenas in terms of where we you know, what news can we trust? What candidates can we trust? What institutions can we trust? We're watching it around disinformation around vaccines and the pandemic. Is this not a sort of a medium for a message that increasingly, for, as a point of, I'll use your term, Tim, stored value, that there is growing distrust around fiat currency and people looking for something that is an alternative, that can provide stored value, that can provide a proxy or a hedge that gives the opportunity to make money. Joe, you referenced the fact that people can't put money in a bank anymore and earn any any interest on it. How much of um, cryptocurrency is delivering that message to the marketplace? Excellent. Um, you know, Tim and I, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the marketplace and we talked about trust in it. And, you know, what you saw years ago uh, when China, who's always trying to close their markets and not close the markets, but rather define how crypto is going to be used in their space. And they, they stopped mining. But what you see is, you know, they, they, the miners left. And we actually have more mining operations in the U.S. now because of that. People will flee and they'll go to a more mature marketplace, which I'm responding to about the fiat. I don't know if what's going to happen with the U.S. dollar, right, from a national security standpoint. What I do know, and Tim touched on this, is that 
the way in which value is transferred, whether it's going to be a pegged stable coin to the U.S. dollar, where now the U.S. dollar is, quote unquote, accessible 24-7 as opposed to just banking hours um, electronically because we'll be pegged, you know, using USDT as the example or something like that. Um, you know, the, 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 the ability to move with the U.S. dollar pegged to it or some commodity pegged to it is actually going to make it more widespread. But I do believe, based on our, and I believe uh, Pat Toomey also, you know, has has a similar uh, view. I adopt his view rather. You know, it's we have a very strong structure in place, and there are all the books and everything, right? We always talk about it. You, people move at the speed of trust. Well, whether the regulatory uh, regime of the U.S. or some more developed countries are a concern for the crypto enthusiasts um, or or not is not going to actually uh, make people shy away from the U.S. or, you know, the G7 type countries. And, and they will start investing their money in that. And it's that adoption curve, the Cotter uh, adoption curve that, you know, again, Tim was talking about earlier. You know, you have the enthusiasm of the early crypto uh, folks, and then you have the adoption of more uh, regulatory, you know, focused folks like myself. But yet here you come out of 2008 and you create something that you think is going to protect the world from another collapse. And, and, and it's just the, the, the contradiction of now in order for it to be adopted has to go back to that old world constantly comes up. Even, even the acting uh, comptroller of currency, Sue recently was talking about, um, you know, the 2008 catastrophe and how crypto is going to actually contribute to that if there's not more regulation around it, which is just crazy from, uh, you know, the, the standpoint of uh, the way that the, uh, the evolution of crypto has started and now actually how we're trying to compare that the, uh, you know, the, the, the volatility of the marketplace and the uncertainty of the marketplace might actually lead to more damage. You know, so it, there's there's so much that you touched on and that we're touching on from the evolution of it to the strong market conditions to the strong regulatory environment. Um, you know, and that, that's just my reaction to it. I don't know what Tim's thoughts were, but yeah, I I think look, I think you you, you hit it right right on. I mean, it's, it, this is all about trust. But I and I think David's point. If you looked at the purest, you mentioned at the beginning, David. If you looked at the purest on on Bitcoin and those that are just this is they believe in it they believe in it as the future of cash and fiat and international payments and you know fiat will go away and cash will go away but they they truly they have the distrust right the purist has a distrust not only of governments but also of banks and also of the commercial platforms um, that are actually trying to put some type of uh, regulatory framework around this even the commercial sector is trying to do that even though the government hasn't caught quite get caught up, which is follows the curve as well. The government's generally behind with the regulatory activity and guidance. And but the peers truly distrust the government to, to Joe's point of how this all started in the financial crash. Um, but they also have the peers also have a distrust of the platforms um, or the big tech companies um, that are that are involved in this space. Because they truly believe it it is the democratization of the financial system and the financial inclusion. That's the purest. But we all know that without trust in any of these systems, there will be, there will be failure. So we have to have this public-private partnership like never before. And the U.S. has to lead this. If you see what China is doing, um, leading um, you know, with their digital currency, the, the U.S. government has to lead this in a public-private partnership 
um, similar if you look back to what happened to the internet. The, the government, uh, you know, develops the internet, but it was really not, is the commercial market that actually did the innovation and the growth. You're seeing it in space exploration today. So you have to have this commercial, commercial sector. So even the purists don't even want that, but we, in my opinion, they have to be involved because that's where all this innovation you're seeing just recently, I think this week, Twitter, um, you know, has incorporated tipping on, on Twitter. And you can do that around the world on the app itself using, you know, a, a, an app called Strike and a system that was used down in El Salvador. So you're seeing even these, these um, Silicon Valley, you know, tech icons that are involved in this space heavily because they see the future upon building upon the Internet that this is the next next stage. But certainly you do have... Um, why this was started was was distrust in the, in the current systems that we have. And the demographics, if I can add, you know, that you were touching on before, David, the demogra- uh, demographics are amazing. You know, I'm working at a, a institution that are, you know, I'm, I'm working with a lot more Wall Street folks than three and a half years ago when I first entered into the space where I was a, a considered a, a Wall Street person. But to your point, the people trading on the system, I'm learning how, you know, ERC-20s are, are created by um, brilliant engineers. And I know that the value of engineers that I'm learning, you know, they're looking, looking at risk differently also, which is just amazing when I'm saying, okay, you know, here's our due diligence process and we're collecting this information and this is what we're doing. Um, you know, it's like the old, uh, the old scene in Toy Story, you know, when, uh, you know, they're uh, in actually, uh, you know, um, a big rather with uh, Tom Hanks, I'm dating myself, but when he, you know, they're trying to create a building in the corporate room and they're showing how the building translates, you know, transfers into a, uh, a robot and Tom Hanks says, I don't get it. Well, you know, uh, it, I don't, I didn't get it and, and, and I'm still not getting it. And, you know, a mathematical equation that turns into, uh, you know, a value somewhere. And there's so much to it that the older generation and the old guard doesn't get, and you do have to cooperate not only with the regulatory, you know, agencies, but also with the engineers, the people that actually came out of 2008 and said, this is not good anymore. We have to think of different ways to do this. And, and we can remarkably talk about the ability of actually uh, what it will do with the asset transfer of wealth and, and the ability to actually see where your money is going to, to prevent fraud and, and bribery and all that corruption that's going on overseas. And, and in our own backyard rather as well you know so there, there's so many use cases to this but we have to start listening and working with those engineers and with these folks that are actually these you know these these younger uh generation which they understood this and they got it off the ground um and we can't you know bastardize it by adopting it back into you know pre-2008 uh terms and conditions you know through regulations and all that stuff so we have to have that careful balance um but it, it's exciting good stuff yeah, Joe, you, you, the other thing I'll add there, and I always say flippantly, you know, about this adoption and people getting involved and not able, none of us can, can truly see what the future holds, except knowing that technology is radically changing the way we live day to day. But, you know, you can flippantly say, whoever thought you'd, you wouldn't go to a bookstore and buy books, whoever thought that you wouldn't go to a blockbuster, whoever thought you'd have the amount of electrical ve- electric vehicles you have. I mean, you can go on and on with the use cases the, the shopping online, what's happened to malls. This is all technology driven. And this is no different. It's just now disrupting the way we've had this financial model for, you know, the, the 100 years. Couldn't agree more.
So it, it, you're right. Uh, the innovation is actually touching on everything. And in order to better understand the, uh, you know, the, that innovation, we have to understand the, the, the roots of transferring information. And that's effectively what we're talking about with the development of the Internet. You know, this is just a, uh, you know, yeah, we're talking about in terms of asset transfers and regulations, but it's a communication network. But the national security issues that we'll talk to at later dates are really going to come down to the countries and their ability, the regimes to be able to say, how is this going to disrupt the way that I communicate with my citizens? How is it going to disrupt my economy? How is it going to disrupt my standing in the world? And, you know, let's say approximately 200 countries, they all have a vested interest. You know, we talk about El Salvador, we talk about Panama, we talk about Russia, we talk about China, we talk about all of these regimes. Um, there's no reason why none of them, if we really believe that this is the evolution of the way that we exchange money and values from shells to, you know, e-cash, um, you know, to these tokens and stable coins, there's no reason to believe that every one of these countries are not going to be up and running from an electronic standpoint within the next 20 years. So the national security implications of that are just uh, remarkable. And that's what I'm curious about since we stay in that theme of curiosity, David. All right. So, so as we emerge from uh, the Wild West, I want to talk about your perspectives on where you think regulations might be going, balancing the need not to kill off innovation, uh, but have regulations that provide sustainable trust, if I can use that word, Tim. And um, I would recommend for the audience, I, I recently reread it, Professor Ferguson of, uh, at least he was at Harvard University, uh, wrote a wonderful book called The Ascent of Money, which is basically the history of money. And so, uh, written before the advent of uh, cryptocurrency, but it's, it's worthwhile context for understanding a little bit of what is happening now and what may be happening in the future. But when we talk about sustainable trust in currency, uh, it wasn't so long ago that President Nixon went off the gold standard and it you know, basically was the full faith and credit of the United States. Um, but when we talk about trust around crypto, the elements that I think the regulators have to address are the issues around um, market manipulation how the currencies are marketed to investors and what they know about the risks. There are fundamental security and cybersecurity issues about what can go missing very, very quickly. Uh, it is about some of the bad actors who will use the currency for a variety of means and uh, illicit purposes. Um, and you know, finally, what I'll refer to is a regulatory environment where you have the resources that can investigate and oversee the marketplace to ensure transparency and fairness and, uh, and the fact that, you know, customers are not, you know, basically being exposed to fraud. It is also interesting, even though, you know, we're fortunate to have both of you on this podcast, in the future, we hope to have the... Uh, future chair, uh, the former chair of the SEC, Jay Clayton, who's also gotten involved in this in a variety of ways. But maybe you can give us your respective perspectives on where regulations may be going, but where they really need to go 
to sustain the marketplace and protect investors and, as you said, Joe, there are national security implications here. Joe, you want me want me kick off? Um, look, I, I, I David, I, I, I want to start out with saying, look, this this can be done in a way, um, and you're already seeing it happen, right? So if we if we it can be done in a way that's a, a using current regulatory regimes that we have, and you're seeing that play out in the U.S. when you look at uh, Coinbase, Robinhood, Gemini the other, other exchanges that a lot of retail use as well as institutions. Um, <clears throat> you know, I can remember when I was a, first investing, no one really knew what to do around the tax implications, right? And so that was late in coming. And then you saw that come out, um, you know, five or so years ago. I forget the time frame on it. And, and you started getting, whether it was from Coinbase, or you started getting the, the right structure around their reporting around taxes and, and who owes money on, on what from their gains in, in cryptocurrency space, particularly Bitcoin. But now you see that Coinbase, you know, abides by and has a regulatory framework around um, know your customer. Right. So and no different than than any of the FIs about knowing who your customer, knowing what the transactions, knowing what's happening on their platforms. So that is that is occurring and similar to the same cybersecurity um, and probably more so um, cybersecurity regulations and cybersecurity controls in place, um, you know, monitoring for bad actors. There's crypto. There's commercial companies now. Um, you know, do you have Chainalysis? You've got uh, Anchain AI that have blockchain intelligence that can look at bad actors, and, and, a, and a number of those companies are on contracts already with the United States government to be able to to monitor and see who the bad actors are in this space. So you're starting to see some things put in place over the last couple of years, and I, I think at the pace it is, it's been it's been even handed. But on the same time, I say that. What I do worry about is the government still only has a few, maybe a handful of really knowledgeable people about this space. Um, And so I don't think the heavy regulatory frameworks have caught up or even been devised yet on what they do in this space for the U.S. as well as around the world with all the different regulatory regimes you have around the world. So, you know, there's there's a long way to go. And the, the balance is, you know, keeping it a light framework, but also one that has consumer protections and trust. People don't want to be ripped off. I think it's a little bit, I, I talked about the adoption curve, and I think it's a little bit overblown, um, you know, both from a, a, a fraud, certainly there is, certainly there's cyber attacks, not on the blockchain itself that have been successful, but on but on other cryptocurrencies that, you know, it might be the end wallets, it might be, you know, something attached to the blockchain that's been been hacked or information stolen. Um, but when it comes to like AML and CTF, certainly state sponsors are using cryptocurrencies to, you know, work around sanctions. Certainly there's criminal activity, but still what people, if, if you really get educated on it, the amount of illegal activity and money laundering with cash in the U.S. dollar just dwarfs what's happening in the crypto space. And that may be because of the adoption rate of crypto. And, you know, we talk in crypto at large, but a majority of cryptocurrencies, in, in my mind, will be gone 
Um, just I mentioned that earlier, just like companies that were established in the early days of the Internet. And you will have some of these stable coins that Joe talked about. Maybe Bitcoin could be something else, Ethereum. But Chainalysis really did, just recently did a study where only a third of all, third of 1% of all transactions have been used for money laundering. Right, And they've got a good handle on the tracking of this. And of that, uh, 270 addresses were used for 55% of the activity. So you can quickly see there is visibility into it so we can get, garner some trust over what's happening. But I, I think, I don't know what the future looks like for regulatory other than we have to build some of the current systems we have for, for regulatory functions and build them in a light manner that doesn't stifle the innovation and shut, shut, try to shut this down similar to what China has done. So Tim, let me, let me uh, before um, I turn to Joe, I want to emphasize a point that you're making, which is whatever decisions are going to be made on regulation should be made upon the data, not the emotion, not, the, not episodically the last event that may have happened. But what you are articulating is, as you look at the data in terms of how cryptocurrencies are being used, uh, the data is actually fairly favorable in terms of its exposure to criminal activity and illicit state-sponsored activity. Uh, I will note, simply draw upon my days as at the U.S. Attorney's Office and your days at the FBI and Joe's days, you know, the coin of the realm for illicit activity around the world has always or traditionally been the $100 bill, the U.S. $100 bill, as well as counterfeit um, U.S. $100 bills. And, you know, clearly uh, what I think I'm hearing you say is that there is traceability and transparency around cryptocurrency, which has never existed around uh, printed currency such as the $100 bills. And just you know, to make sure I'm squaring the circle for the audience, what you're really an advocate for is regulation based upon evidence and data, and also recognizing whether it's paper currency, credit cards, debit cards, etc. Any instrument that involves money or the movement of money is potentially uh, exploitable. And so it is about rational regulations and in many respects the systems that we've already put in place and figuring out how to leverage them and scale them appropriately. Would you agree with my summation? Yeah, I, I, look, you're, you're always much more articulate than I can ever be. I'm more passionate about it than, than you. Uh, but let's think about this as if just like an entrepreneur would or the innovators in the space would like Brian Armstrong and some of the others that have built these company, companies, let's think of it in the realm of this is a startup and we have to build regulation or, or a regulatory regime around this type of product. The immediate part of regulation, right, is, is what is the outcome of it? What is the objection? Uh, you know, by the crypto enthusiast? What is the objection by other folks in this world? But what is the objective of it? Is it for protection? Is it uh, to make sure that, you know, there's transparency in the marketplace? So best execution to for trading occurs from a, uh, you know, from a, from a capital market standpoint? You know, you look at blue chip stocks, they're subject to insider trading. 
right? You look at penny stocks, they're subject to manipulation. The vulnerability of these products are different. And you have three choices. The first choice, they do nothing on the hill. Second is they integrate it into an existing framework. We see a lot of that going on right now with the SEC chairman talking about it and the CFTC. Or we create a new organization. And we know where uh, the appetite would be for something like that. Probably wouldn't be uh, any, actually. You know, the federal functional regulators, there's there's a product that looks and feels or, uh, or a part of this elephant that looks and feels like uh, something under their jurisdiction, but not under everyone's jurisdiction. And remember, this happened after the Patriot Act was passed, right? You had all of these organizations, all of these regulators, all of these uh, institutions, you know, saying, hey, guys, you're, 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 you're regulating us all for the same thing. And then, then there was the adoption curve and the FFIC came out with the uh, standardized approach and, and the securities regulators coordinated a heck of a lot better. And, and that was the uh, adoption process. But it isn't a view that is regulation good, is regulation bad? Um, it's a view that there needs to be an orderly marketplace, you know, at least from the lens that we're coming from. You're looking at trading and market making activities and nobody wants to buy, you know, BTC using that as the example. And I think, you know, it, the number range is 10, right? I think we're at like 7,000, uh, around 7,000 tokens right now. I think it was 10,000 uh, a year or two ago. But, um, you know, you're, we're not trading all 10,000. We're not trading all 7,000. We're only trading uh, actually, you know, at my company and most of the uh, institutional shops, they're, they're, they're trading, you know, less than 1,000 because they're doing the tokens assessments. But in any event, you know, it, the, the regulation for us is welcomed by our partners because remember the corporate treasuries, the hedge funds, the the banks that want exposure, whether it's through an ETF or directly through a, uh, a token, you know, they, they, they want the exposure the same way, you know, the regulation, the same way me as a retail person, I actually enjoy going to Coinbase. There I said it. I like it. I know they're going to be around. They, 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 you know, it's afforded somewhat protection by the fact that the SEC registration, you know, I, I buy my uh, XLM, I buy my Cardano, I buy my CeeLo, you know, my scale. I still have my XRP, which they don't trade right now because I do believe in that, you know, and, and there are so many things that I, I want to see evolve in this space in terms of regulation, but we can't of course, stifle innovation. And that's the often cry that you hear. And we, we hear that in so many news cycles over the years, you know, insert year and insert product. But, um, you know, we're not talking about stifling innovation. We're talking about responsible growth here, uh, global growth, the standardization so that people can communicate better, transfer wealth better, get money to, you know, remittance flows out of the country to, you know, the families. I mean, we're talking about responsible growth from an economic standpoint. So that's my reaction to uh, the re regulatory dialogue. There's still a lot of, you know, land grab that people are going to want to do, but they can't do. And I don't want to see, you know, organizations that are led by just a couple of firms engage a regulator, you know, pick an SEC, pick a CFTC, pick an OCC, because they don't have jurisdiction over every single aspect of the product. They have pieces of it. So I don't know what that looks like. And there are a lot of smart people in Washington that actually do have a view on that. The same way that I've actually learned that these engineers are brilliant, there are a lot of policymakers that have a strong view on that. And a lot of good people are coming out on this. I'll pause there. Hey, David. And Joe, I understood your comments, which is as we think through the potential regulations, it is absolutely essential to think not only about on a cost-benefit basis of what exists today, but what are the potential benefits of what is being created, invented, possibly might be re-engineered in the future. 
So before imposing regulations, make sure we understand what the opportunities are and what the benefits potentially could be broadly. That's right. Coming at it from a risk assessment standpoint, right? But most importantly, the objective or the outcome for me would be that there's standardization that allows for flexibility and scalability and the actual use cases that people actually wanted to adopt and employ outside of just trading activity. We're seeing this trading activity and we're talking about it and the news cycles are talking about it, but there's so much more capability with this, which is exciting. And Tim talks about passion and that's what I think most of the people in this space have, certainly passion and, and smarts and to think that through. And that's why I think the regulation has to adopt for. It can't consider it just in a trading uh, standpoint. Yes, we need to get that. We have to calm you know, down the markets and we have to get rid of that volatility. It's a mess, but you know what? Um, the standardization will allow for that scalability and orderly marketplace. That's, that's at least my view. So I want to thank both of you for a great uh, inaugural session of the podcast. I look forward to a second one in about two weeks. We have a lot to cover, and there's certainly, on a daily basis, a lot that's occurring, both in terms of the commercial applications, the levels of interest, and obviously various regulatory and uh, law enforcement uh, concerns that are coming to the market. So I thank both of you, and uh, you know I can't think of two better people uh, to bring to the audience Uh, to help share perspectives because you've been on sort of all sides of the trade, as they say. So, uh, Joe, thanks so much. Tim, thanks again, as always, and uh, look forward to reconvening in a couple of weeks. Thank Thank you. you. Joseph Harvey is Chief Compliance Officer at Falcon X, and Tim Murphy is President and CEO of Consortium.net. You can find more details about both businesses at RainNetwork.com. Rain is a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights and analysis, as well as support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. We offer custom cyber risk monitoring, including tools to efficiently screen and analyze emerging risks for your business. Find out how Rain can power your business to success. Visit RainNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.